Thank you, Logan. Thanks, everybody, for coming back. Really uh, appreciate the uh, solid attendance for week two. Uh, we've got a lot to cover today, so we're going to move right through. Uh, before I do, I want to introduce my father, Dr. David McRae. We mentioned last week uh, he's able to be here today. I think he'll be here most weeks, um, and there'll be a couple weeks where he'll be taking the lead. Uh, he would never say this. I would venture to say he has some of the most up-to-date and informed knowledge of this conflict, at least in the city, uh, if not broader. So uh, he's, he's far more of an expert on this than I am. I know he'll, he'll be very annoyed with you, with me that I told you that. I will. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you. <laughs> let, let me, I just want to, since I didn't get to be here last week, tell you how much of a pleasure it is to be here at Otter Creek, even though it's not the Otter Creek that I grew up at. Um, it was way down the road. But um, to be here with my, with my parents, um, and with Michael, it's a, it's a real pleasure. Not only did we go to Otter Creek many, many years ago when my father preached here, but I attended Otter Creek when I was in college at Vanderbilt. So it's a real special to be back. I've told Michael this several times, that there are places in my life where I am known best as the son of John McRae. <coughs> Otter Creek is one of those places. Uh, there are also many places now where I'm known best as the father of Michael McRae. Uh, and both of those are a great honor. And so it's, it's my pleasure to be a part of one of these classes and, and really to help support Michael because he has the expertise to do this. So, thank, you. thank you. So I'll, um, I've given Dad permission to jump in and, and add something or even correct me if my knowledge is a little old by now uh, since he goes every year. So, um, and, and I was asked to reiterate, and I think it, it's wise to say that as we tell this story, some of you may be thinking, okay, but I feel like there's more to this. You're not, you're not talking about a lot of the stuff I've heard about Jewish suffering and so on and so forth. And the reason we're not going to talk about that as much is because precisely where the question comes from. You're not talking about what I've already heard, right? The idea being that we've heard one particular story. It's likely a true story. It's a, it's a worthwhile story. It's, it's, a, it's a story that we need to know. But the idea that we're working with in this class that we showed from the board last week is that there's a whole other story that we, we haven't heard. And the question that we want to ask is, does it change anything for us? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe we'll end the class and be right where we were when we started. But when we hear the side of the story that we haven't heard, what, how does that change our relationship to this conflict? Does it do anything for us theologically, politically? Um, you can come on in. <laughs> uh, so that, that's the question we're looking uh, we're looking. Um, looking at we are going to um, mention some of those major atrocities about for instance like the holocaust we're not going to dive into because most everyone knows about the holocaust has studied the holocaust so we won't spend a lot of time talking about that but we're going to start uh, in the late 1800s one of the biggest myths about this conflict is that this that the jews and the arabs have been fighting since isaac and ishmael it's the first myth you want to get rid of not true <laughs> Right? There, it would be true to say that there have been tensions throughout history between people living in the land, but that's true most every land that you look at in the world. Right? When people live together, I like to say where two or three are gathered, there will be conflict. <laughs> you know? um, hopefully God's there too, but there's going to be conflict. Uh, and, uh, and the same would be true in the Middle East, in Israel and Palestine. Um, but the conflict that we're talking about today, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, does not start back in biblical times. I would venture to say it starts in the late 1800s. So that's where we're going to start, okay? So to start with, we want to talk about this notion of historic Zionism. We cannot understand Israel-Palestine without understanding the concept of Zionism. I would say that historic Zionism is the desire to create a Jewish homeland in ancestral Palestine. It's as simple as that. Jews live there for a long time. They get driven out in AD 70 in the, in the diaspora by the Romans. And then for 2,000 years, there's this longing to come back. 
right? They, they end many of their prayers next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. We want to go back. We want to go back. That desire is very, very old. The actual political movement to make it happen is relatively new, right? The late 1800s. So we want to draw a distinction between political Zionism and this historic Zionism as a desire to return to the land, okay? That's been around for a long time. But here are the events that took place to help make that, uh, that desire an actual political reality. There's a lot of persecution in the Jew, of the Jews. As you know, that doesn't start with the Holocaust. Most everywhere that the Jewish people have gone, they have felt and have experienced persecution and discrimination. And so um, modern political Zionism emerges under this context. The French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, they were fueling nationalism all over Europe. People all over Europe, as they're being conquered, are getting the sense to which, you know, we're a nation, we should defend ourselves, and it was happening to the Jewish people as well. We're a Jewish nation, we're a nation like any other nation, we should have a place. And then in the, late, in the early 1880s, there are pogroms in Eastern Europe. These are um, kind of organized persecution by the government under Alexander, uh, Tsar Alexander III. And so he, you'll, let me put this in, uh, in visual. Has anyone seen Fiddler on the Roof? A few of you, yeah. So you'll remember the scene where there's a, there's a wedding scene and then the Russian soldiers come in and start destroying the, uh, the wedding and then all the people have to leave Anatevka. Those were part of the pogroms. Right? It's that kind of persecution, targeting Jewish people, destroying their homes, burning their belongings, even rape, the murder. Those things were happening. And so you have in the early 1880s what's called the first Aliyah. Aliyah is a Hebrew word meaning ascent. And it refers to this uh, immigration to the ancestral land of Palestine. Even today, when Jews move to Israel to become citizens, they refer to it as making Aliyah. That's the term for immigration to, to Israel. At this time, it would have been Palestine. So the first major wave of immigrants happens in the, in the early uh, 1880s in response to the persecution suffered in Eastern Europe. With me so far? Okay. So there's a lot of Western, there are a lot of Western Jews that are wanting assimilation, but there's a whole lot of resistance in the society to that. People are not really wanting the Jews to assimilate into society. Anti-Semitism has been around for a very long time. Therefore, the desire uh, really grows for uh, there to be a homeland where the Jews can live, where they're safe from persecution, right? Nobody has a problem with that. <laughs> Nobody has a problem with a persecuted people saying, we need a safe place to go. Everywhere we go where there are not Jewish people, we end up suffering. We need to go back to our ancestral homeland where we can be safe. Totally on board with that, right? We'll talk about where the problem comes in a little bit, but we're totally on board with that so far. You need a place to be safe. Well, here's the guy that starts giving this um, kind of legs in a political movement. It's a guy named Theodore Herzl. Has anyone ever heard of Theodore Herzl? Just a few. So I, I suspect that most of what you're gonna hear today is stuff that you probably haven't heard before. Okay, and that's why we wanna cover it. So Theodore Herzl is the father of political Zionism. He was a journalist living in France, Hungarian born, and he covers uh, at one point in 1894 uh, an incident known as the Dreyfus Affair, wherein essentially there's a Jewish officer who's falsely accused of treason and he's banished from France. And Herzl looks at that and says the only reason this happened is because he's a Jew. And he becomes convinced that the Jews will never be safe. They will never be welcome anywhere and where there are non-Jews. So we have to go somewhere. We have to figure this out because when we're here with other non-Jews, this stuff happens. We get accused falsely simply because we're Jews and we get banished. So he writes a, a pamphlet known as The Jewish State, or Der Judenstaat, publishes it in 1896, and it calls for the creation of a Jewish state in historic Palestine. Well, he proposed historic Palestine or Argentina. He had two proposals, which is really interesting. Um, so there could have been a Palestine and Argentina, who knows. Um, 
but it gives voice and um, momentum to Zionism. He has in there what the flag would look like, what the uh, language would be, what the currency would be, what the borders would be. He, he has all of this stuff laid out in this very kind of concrete uh, strategy for how we're going to accomplish what we've been talking about for 2,000 years. So then they convene a Zionist Congress the very next year, 1897, in Basel, Switzerland. It's about 200 delegates of prominent Jewish leaders from all around Europe. And one of the things that they do is say that they will be going to Palestine. It's not going to be Argentina. We want to go to Palestine. And it's called Zionism because of Mount Zion, right? They want to return to Zion. Uh, and so th that's the major development of the First Zionist Congress is they come together and say, okay, Herzl, you had some really good ideas. We're going to do it, and we're going to go to Palestine. Now, there's a story that's told about this, uh, this um, Congress. We're, uh, we're unsure whether it's an apocryphal story, uh, but it does express a truth whether or not it actually happened. And the way the story goes is that after the Congress, or actually during the Congress, um, the delegates dispatched a couple of rabbis to go to Palestine to, again, I'm going to use Palestine because there is no such thing as Israel at this point, right? With me so far. So they dispatched these rabbis to go to Palestine and, um, and survey the land and see if it's fit for a Jewish state. Could we actually make this work? And so the Jewish rabbis go, they survey the land, and this is what they say the telegram back said. The bride is beautiful, but she's married to another man. Very interesting, right? Now, again, the, the scholarship is contested as to whether or not this is a factual story, but it is a true story in the sense that it expresses a truth about the mindset uh, of the Jewish leaders at the time, and I'll show you some evidence of that. At this time, there's a very popular phrase going around, and I'm sure many of you have heard this phrase, Palestine is a land without a people for a people without a land. It's a pretty popular phrase. This man who's a British journalist, Israel Zangwill, he really is beginning to propagate this, this phrase. This is a perfect match. We have a homeless people and a land that is uninhabited, and we should put them together, and what do you know, it happens to be our ancestral homeland. What more could we ask for? This is a match made in heaven, as Pastor John Hagee out of San Antonio would say. So, this is in 1901. Palestine is a land without a people for a people without a land. Now, I do want to emphasize that I believe that most of the ordinary uh, Jewish immigrants who are heading to Palestine believe this. They've got no reason not to. But what I want to show is that at the leadership level, they knew that this was false. They knew it. At the leadership level, and I'll, and I'll show you evidence of this, that doesn't say that every immigrant, every Jewish immigrant going to Palestine knew that they were going to take someone else's land. I don't believe that. But I do believe that the leadership level knew what they were doing and had strategy for it from the beginning. So Zangwill says, it's a land without a people for a people without a land. 20 years later, this is what he writes. Palestine has already its inhabitants. The Pashalik, the region of Jerusalem, is already twice as thickly populated as the United States, having 52 souls to every square mile and not a quarter of them Jews. So we must be prepared either to drive out by the sword the tribes in possession as our forefathers did, or to grapple with the problem of a large alien population. All right, that's in 1921. Same guy who says, it's a land without a people for people without a land. He later says, well, sort of, but it's like more densely populated than the United States. Uh, and we're gonna have to either get rid of them or just find some way to deal with the fact that there are a whole lot of people in a land that, where we don't want them. Yitzhak Epstein, a Jewish writer, wrote in his book, The Hidden Question, in 1905, and he chides the Zionist leadership for, and you can just hear it dripping in sarcasm, overlooking the marginal fact that in our beloved land there lives an entire people that has been dwelling there for many centuries and has never considered leaving it. Right? 1905. So let's look at 
Is that actually true? Were there actually people there? Well, let's talk in terms of size. The whole land of Israel-Palestine is about 10,000 square miles. That's about the size of Maryland or Vermont. The Negev Desert, which is fairly uninhabitable, is about 6,000 square miles, which means the inhabitable area of this land is smaller than Connecticut. Okay? Middle Tennessee, for comparison, is 17,000 square miles. So, for instance, to give you a map here, if we zoom in on Middle Tennessee and put in the West Bank, Nashville to the border. Talking a very small piece of real estate. <laughs> very small. Uh, and were there people there? Let me show you some numbers. The official 1878 Ottoman census. Remember, the Ottomans are in control from about 1517 to 1917. So during all this stuff with the rise of political Zionism, the Ottoman Empire is in control of Palestine. Their numbers were about four, uh, 450,000 Muslims and Christians. Those would have been mainly Arabs. Uh, and 15,000 Jews. And then the 1922 census under the British, who take over after the Ottomans, say there are about 589,000 Muslims, 71,000 Christians, and 83,000 Jews. So no, it is not true that, it was a peop there, that Palestine was a land without people. It was true that the Jews were a people without a land. That was true. It was not true, the other side of the statement, that it was a land without people. So, now the question changes slightly. So first it was, how, where do we go to set up our Jewish homeland to be safe from persecution? Then it becomes, how do we create a Jewish homeland in a land that already has people in it? Now, one Jewish writer says that this is the great tragedy of Zionism, is that it happens in the late 1800s, when pretty much every place on earth had people in it already. Right? That there's nothing really unique about the foundation of Israel. Most every nation state is born through violence. The United States is that way that the great tragedy of this is that it just happens when it happens and that there were no matter where the Jewish people went they were going to have to get rid of somebody if they were going to have a nation state of exclusively Jewish people right the problem is not we need to be safe from persecution therefore we need our homeland the problem arises when it says and the only way to do that is to have a land where there are no other Jews or there are only Jews excuse me we have to have only Jews that's where the problem arises because the land that they chose, and most any land they would have chosen, including Argentina, had people there. So you're going to have to get rid of them. So we'll talk about that. So we asked the question, how do we create this Jewish homeland in a land with other people? Here's Theodore Herzl, the father of political Zionism, who wrote in his diary in 1897, the very year of the Zionist Congress, we shall try to spirit the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for them in the transit countries, while denying any employment in our country, both the process of expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly. Okay? Again, this is the guy who gives voice to the whole thing, and this is what he's writing. We have to get them out, and originally the plan was economically. It wasn't through violence. The plan was, we'll simply deny them employment where in, in Palestine, on this side of the Jordan River, and we'll make sure they have employment opportunities on the other side so that simply by economic necessity, they're gonna have to leave. Okay? Am I good so far? Great. So, what does he end up doing? At first, he pursues diplomacy. He, he offers uh, to take the land from the Ottomans if the Jewish people will repay their debt, which is a substantial offer. Um, the Ottomans don't go for it. So then Herzl, Herzl was quite the diplomat. Then he goes to the British and says, well, could we have Uganda as a temporary solution? Okay? We don't want to stay there forever, but until we can get Palestine, can we at least have space in Uganda? Because the British controlled Uganda. Uh, and the British say no. So then in 1901, the Jewish National Fund, which was a nonprofit sort of set up to buy and sell land from the Ottoman Empire, say that any uh, and all land that is purchased um, from the Ottoman Empire must always remain Jewish. 
So that starts to be a problem. And what ends up happening next is we have the second Aliyah. We have another major wave of pogroms in Europe and more Jews start coming to Palestine, including this gentleman right here named David Ben-Gurion, who you probably have heard of if you've ever been to Israel because you would have flown into Ben-Gurion Airport. He becomes the first prime minister of Israel in 1948. Um, and this is a group of people that come with strong socialist leanings and a desire to set up an egalitarian agricultural society. What, and they start establishing what we know as the kibbutzes or the kibbutzim. Right? These agricultural settlements that are based on socialist principles. But here's the catch. These must be run solely on Jewish labor. Right? They're buying up land. So here's the way that a lot of it worked. A lot of the Palestinians are working land that they don't necessarily own, but that they have been working uh, for these absentee landowners in the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire owns a lot of the land. Palestinians work it, and their family may have worked it for generations and generations. So they feel this belonging to the land, even if they don't technically own a lot of it. But what's happens is then the Jewish uh, immigrants are coming in, they're buying up a lot of this land from the Ottoman Empire, and then they're dismissing the Arabs who have been working there for, for generations, potentially even centuries, and saying this is now our land and will be run solely on Jewish labor. This is when the unrest starts. I would argue this is really the root of the conflict. This practice of labor exclusivism is when the tensions start building. It's not about religion. It's not about the history of Isaac and Ishmael. I would say it is about the rise of political Zionism that says we need to create a homeland where there are no other people, so we'll buy up land that is worked by the Arabs in Palestine and then we'll keep them from working it. It's directly, I mean, you just saw it's in complete um, harmony with what Herzl was writing. Deny them employment on our side and offer them employment on the other side. Question? What was their definition of who's Jewish and who's not Jewish? How did they determine that? I think for the most part it's based on your mother, isn't it? I know a lot of folks are probably going to have questions. We, are, we have a tremendous amount of stuff to cover. If, if your question can wait, that would be wonderful. If you need to ask it, please go ahead. But we are going to reserve hopefully the very last week and a week right in the middle for just Q&A, an entire session on Q&A. So if you have questions, maybe just start penciling them down, and then we can come back to them in those weeks and talk about them. Because uh, I do want to make sure we try and get through all this. If you have a question clarifying something I've just said, please ask that. Uh, otherwise, maybe we can talk about the questions a bit later, okay? So, um, unrest is growing and it emerges frequently in violent form. Then we have World War I. 1914, World War I starts. The Ottoman Empire is on the verge of collapse. And so what happens is that the Sharif of Mecca in 1915 sends a letter to the British High Commissioner in Egypt saying, um, we really need help from the British. And if you help us, we will join your war against the Turks and help you overthrow the Turks. And so the British High Commissioner, a guy named MacMahon, says, great, we'll do that, and if you help us, we will give you independence uh, in all the regions within the limits demanded, which Palestinians would say included Palestine. So in other words, they're saying, um, we have a written agreement from the British government that says, if we join the war and help you fight the Turks and overthrow the Turks, you'll give us independence. 
Well, it didn't happen. They didn't get independence. The British would say, we never meant for that to include Palestine. The Palestinians said, well, we sure think it did. And so there's this kind of back and forth. The very next year, I think it's the next year, 1916, the British Foreign Secretary sends a letter to a, a prominent Jewish leader in England named Lord Rothschild, and he says this, the British government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, saying, of course, nothing of their political rights or the rights, of the po or the rights and political status enjoyed, enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Right? So we have on the one hand the MacMahon correspondence that says, if you help us, we'll give you independence in all your lands. We then had the British Foreign Secretary saying, well, we're in favor of an establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And you've got these conflicting promises. Make one observation here related to go back to this slide. What Michael said earlier, it is true that one approach to a persecuted people is to give those people a land, a place to go to be separate, to be protected from persecution, and that was one approach to political Zionism. It's also true that another approach to the persecution of a minority population is to say they need to be protected where they live, they need to be fully assimilated into liberal democratic societies where they can be protected. The Balfour Declaration deals with that tension. There are many Jewish people during this time who are saying, we don't want to go to Palestine. We want to be British. We want to be American. We want to be French. There's nothing unique <coughs> about being Jewish. We're not Zionists. We don't want to go home. We want to be treated fairly and safely as Jewish people living in France or England or Holland or anywhere else. And so they're recognizing that by saying that this moves toward a political homeland for the Jews in Palestine should not in any way suggest that Jews in other places need to leave and go back to, to Palestine. Mm -hmm. They need to be treated fairly and safely protected where they are. So there's this extreme tension in the Jewish community that still exists today, especially here among American Jews, mm -hmm. who don't consider themselves to be Zionists, who consider themselves to be fully American and don't have any specific connection to the state of Israel. Yeah, exactly. I apologize for sweating. I'm, it's, it's a little warm up here in the light. Uh, there are a lot of people in here, which is great. So that's the Balfour Declaration of 1916. It's a fairly important document. It still gets cited a lot in justification for why there's a Jewish state in, in ancestral Palestine. This same gentleman, three years, two years later, says this. In Palestine, we do not propose to go through the form of consulting the wishes of the present inhabitants. The four great powers are committed to Zionism, and Zionism is a far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit that ancient land. So he surely didn't believe it was a land without a people for a people without a land. Um, and he's also saying it doesn't really matter what they think because Zionism is the most important thing and we're committed to that. Was he Jewish? Whoop. What's that? He wasn't Jewish. I don't think Balfour was Jewish. Do you know if he was Jewish? I mean, whoop. where am I? Here's another uh, quote from a Zionist leader in 1923, Vladimir Yabotinsky, who says, Zionist colonization, even the mo again, he's Jewish, even the most restricted form of Zionist colonization must either be terminated or carried out in defiance of the will of the native population. We either got to quit the whole thing or do it irrelevant of what the Palestinians think. So, let's talk about what the Americans were thinking at this time. Uh, in uh, June of 1919, the uh, Middle East and a lot of Africa as well is divided up under a mandate system under the League of Nations. The French get Syria and Lebanon, the British get uh, Palestine, Transjordan, Iraq, and so uh, this land at this time until 1948 is known as the British Mandate of Palestine. 
You hear some people say there's never ever been a place called Palestine. There's never been a Palestinian state. Well, there's never been an actual nation state of Palestine. But if you look at currency from the 1920s and 30s, it's going to say Palestine on it. It was called Palestine. People were called Palestinians. That's what it was called. Um, I, I don't find that a very helpful argument when folks want to delegitimize the claim of a Palestinian state by saying, well, there's never been one. Well, until 1948, there was never a nation state of Israel either. Until 1776, there was never a United States of America. Right? These things happen somewhere. What's to say it can't happen in 2016? It's not, it's not a worthwhile argument. Okay? Land is divided up. Uh, and so once it's divided up, that very same month, June of 1919, uh, Woodrow Wilson says we should commission a, a, a study. This, I think, is one of the most interesting things I've ever come across in this conflict. It's called the King Crane Commission. It's appointed by Wilson to inform American policy regarding the post-Ottoman people, so people who are living in the Ottoman Empire after the Ottoman Empire is gone. What do they think? What is their uh, desired future regarding all this division of territory? What do they want? And so this is the first ever survey of Arab public opinion. Never been done before. But King and Crane go throughout all the land, the non-Turkish areas of the Ottoman Empire, and to see what do, pe what do the people who live here actually want? What do they think of Zionism? What do they think of this League of Nations mandate system? And here's what they write back. Regarding Palestine, we recommend serious modification of the extreme Zionist program. Note, this is in 1919. Extreme uh, Zionist program, serious modification. We began our study, we, the, the commission began their study of Zionism with minds predisposed in its favor, but the actual facts in Palestine changed their minds. I would argue that's our family's story. That's one reason why I resonate with this so much. We went over with minds predisposed in favor of Zionism, but the actual facts of what we saw changed our minds. And this is exactly what the King Crane Commission is saying in 1919. They said, there is much to approve about the Zionist program, but it must be greatly modified for a national home for the Jewish people. We now know that they're quoting the Balfour Declaration. A national home for the Jewish people is not equivalent to making Palestine into a Jewish state right? Homeland state are different. Nor can the erection of such be accomplished without the gravest trespass, essentially, to the indigenous population. The Zionists, they say, looked forward to a practically complete dispossession of the present non-Jewish inhabitants of Palestine by various forms of purchase, right? Again, economics. Oh, thank you. No British officer that we talked to believed that the Zionist program could be carried out except by force of arms. The Zionists have said they're going to do it by purchase. All the British officers who are there say, mm -mm. it's going to have to be through force of arms. It's going to have to be a war. So the commission recommends that only a greatly reduced Zionist program be attempted and that Jewish immigration should be definitely limited and the project for making Palestine distinctly a Jewish commonwealth should be given up. How many people have ever heard of this King Crane Commission? Not a single hand. Oh, my grandmother has. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> had to get that in there, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. What do you think happened with this initially? It, the publication was suppressed in 1919. Why? The uh, State Department said it would not be compatible with the public interest. I don't think I want to say anything else about that. So... 1920s to 1940s, Arabs in Palestine begin resisting. There are two major revolts. I'm not really going to talk about them, but there are major revolts that are happening. So the, Britain, the British decide they have to draw up a partition plan and try and figure out a way for there to be a Jewish state and an Arab state in the same land. And so they draw up what's called the Peel Commission of 1937. This is the first, to my knowledge, 
a formal proposal of partition of the land ever, as far as I know. 1937. What's in red would go to the uh, Arabs. What's in uh, yellow would go to the Jews. And what you see in green would remain essentially British territory, which would include Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and a path to the sea, including Jaffa and Tel Aviv. Okay, so this is the first proposal. Now, of course, most of this is uninhabited, although there are a lot of Bedouin tribes and um, kind of essentially desert peoples who live there. Um, but most of the fertile area is up in here. Um, so this demographically makes sense because the Arabs right now are still, are, I mean, at this time, are by far the majority population. So in terms of fairness, they should get the majority of the land, right? So that's the proposal by the British. The very next year they say, mm, <laughs> never mind. That's kind of impracticable, I believe is how you say that. It's impracticable to create a uh, Jewish and Arab state side by side in the same land. 1937, that's what they're saying. This really isn't a good idea to try and put these two people side by side. So in 2016, this is still the problem that we're facing, right? It's a problem that the British faced in 1938. So uh, they proposed a partition plan. It didn't work. They said, not a good idea. So the next year, they try something different. It's called the White Paper, which is basically an official government uh, document. It's a new British policy, and it tried to meet many of the Arab demands by controlling Jewish immigration, restricting the amount of land that the Jews could purchase. But both the Zionists and the Arabs reject it. Uh, the uh, Arabs reject it because it still results in more Arab loss of land, right? It was, it was controlled immigration and restricted, but it wasn't eliminated. So the Arabs were still going to lose more land. So they say, no, we're not on board. And the Zionists, and they also weren't on board because it didn't guarantee an Arab state in Palestine goes without saying why the Zionists weren't on board. It controlled their immigration and restricted their land purchases. So both people say, we don't like it. We don't want it. The Jewish response to this is really three-pronged. One, they begin illegally immigrating. Should ring a bell for what we're talking about here in the United States. Anyone ever seen the movie Exodus? Right? That's, it's essentially that story, right? They're, they're trying to figure out how they're going to get into Palestine with uh, and, and to kind of sneak people. You remember Paul Newman kind of swimming onto the shore at the very beginning of the movie, having to come under the, the cover of darkness. There was a lot of illegal immigration that was happening at that time. They also switched their imperial sponsors from, the, from Britain to the U.S. They say, okay, Britain, you were helpful for a time, but you're no longer helpful. You're trying to restrict our access here. We're going to the Americans, which was a very wise move. <laughs> it's worked out very well for them. Uh, here's the other thing that's very interesting. Around 1945, the Zionist paramilitaries begin sabotaging, bombing, and assassinating the British. Again, if you've seen the Exodus, the movie Exodus, you will have seen this in there. Concrete example of this would be, anyone know what building this is? King David Hotel, right? Um, the whole, uh, what do, I don't remember which wing it was. Western wing? Anyway, this wing uh, was, uh, was blown up. 90 people are estimated to be killed. Some say 88, some say 91, so I estimated at 90. About another 45 are injured. Some of them Jews. But the King David Hotel was a major kind of holdup for British officers who were living there. There's, this is recreated in the movie Exodus. They blow up the King David Hotel. No, this is in Jerusalem. I'm so sorry. This is in Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, you can see it from the Mount of Olives for those who have been there. Um, presidents often stay there. I think President Bill Clinton has stayed here. Um, there's fantastic cheesecake. It's a great place to go. Um, right. So we're in Jerusalem. British officers are here. And a Zionist paramilitary organization known as the Irgun plants a bomb and blows up this wing. Okay. What's important here is to note that the first bombings arguably the first acts of terrorism, are not Arab. They're Jewish. 
and they're designed at throwing off the British occupation of Palestine. Okay? What year was that? This, is in this was in 1946, King David Hotel, 1946. Here's a very fascinating quote. Yitzhak Shamir, and this, he says this in 1943, regarding the Zionist resistance to the British occupation. Note, he later becomes the seventh prime minister of Israel. Neither Jewish ethics nor Jewish tradition can disqualify terrorism as a means of combat. First and foremost, terrorism is for us a part of the political battle being conducted under the present circumstances and has a great part to play in our war against the occupier. How interesting. Which would be Britain. Which would be Britain. The occupier is Britain. Britain took over after the Ottoman Empire. It has the mandate in Palestine. There are British soldiers everywhere. Uh, the Zionists are wanting a free and independent Jewish state. The Zionists are foreign occupiers. They want them gone. So they start sabotaging, blowing up railroads, blowing up vehicles, blowing up hotels, assassinating officers. Full-on paramilitary battle. And he says, it's, it's not disqualified from our Jewish ethics and our Jewish tradition. The war? Oh, well, the war is over at this in the 1940s. Oh, I'm sorry, the Second World War. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm going to come to that. I think it's one of the next slides about the Holocaust. But of course, German or Hitler invades Poland in 1939. I think it's September of 39, and the Holocaust begins. And so, Jewish immigration will drastically increase. And so, that puts a lot of pressure for them to again feel safe. And so, it is escalating this violence. So, it's not that unusual that it would come in the in the 40s, right? Yeah, but as you say, like 43, that's right in, and, but when the King David Hotel bombing happens in 46, World War II is over. Right. So, I suspect that we could substitute the word Jewish with the word Muslim and have a direct quote from the leader of Hamas. Neither Muslim ethics nor Muslim tradition can disqualify terrorism as a means of combat. It is a great part to play in our war against the occupier. In fact, to give you a direct quote from this guy, the leader of Hamas, he says in 2014, we are not fanatics and we are not fundamentalists. We are not actually fighting the Jews because they are Jews. We do not fight any other races. We fight the occupiers. I'm ready to coexist with the Jews, with the Christians, and the Arabs, and the non-Arabs. However, I do not coexist with occupiers. You don't have to believe him, but I'm just saying it's not all that different language from what Yitzhak Shamir is saying in 1943 regarding what the Jewish uh, paramilitaries are doing to the British. Fairly consistent logic. So let's fly over to the United States. This is very fascinating. Ben Hecht, who's a very prominent Jewish journalist in the 1940s, in fact, he gets a, a warship name for him, the SS Ben Hecht. He writes in the New York Herald Tribune, a letter to the terrorists of Palestine. Note, this is to the Jews, not to the Arabs. The terrorists of Palestine in 1947 are the Jews. Every time you blow up a British arsenal, or wreck a British jail, or send a British railway train sky high, or rob a British bank, or let go with your guns and bombs at the British betrayers and invaders of your homeland, the Jews of America make a little holiday in their hearts. Brave friends, we are working to help you. We are raising funds for you. New York Herald Tribune, 1947. Now, this is not necessarily indicative of all Jewish sentiment in America. Pretty quickly, another prominent Jew named Goldman denounces this as disgusting. This is not representative of Jewish eth ethics. But then another man named Winchell responds and says, look, these Palestinian patriots, again, these are Jews, are no different than our Minutemen. Right? There's a connection among some Jews in America uh, between what happened in the Revolutionary War and what's happening for the uh, Jews in Britain, Britain, British-occupied Palestine, right? 
They're no different than our Minutemen. They're doing the same thing against the same empire, coincidentally. Who are we to condemn? So that's just, it's very interesting as we think about the ways in which we condemn Palestinian resistance to what they would consider occupation. Now, a big difference comes in that most of us say they're not being occupied. The land's the Jewish, the land belongs to the Jews anyway. So you, it's not occupation, it's different. That's where the argument will break down for a lot of people. But it's worth at least noting that at the time that the Jewish paramilitaries are resisting the British occupation, it's being celebrated by some and even labeled as terrorism and being said it's not really that, it, Judaism doesn't disqualify this. It's what we have to do to fight the occupier, okay? Then we have the Holocaust. Not going to spend much time on this, not because the Holocaust doesn't deserve time, it's just because we know, we know the story. We know the story. Absolutely horrific. 3.3, there's a population of Jews in Poland of 3.3 million before the Holocaust happened. There are 300,000 left when it's done, right? It's absolutely incredible what happened to the Jewish people. Six million are killed. Um, I've often talked about one of the most theologically uh, moving experiences in my life happened at the Auschwitz death camp in Poland. Uh, where we had, my dad and I had walked through this camp and had seen the piles of human hair that are left over from when they shaved the heads of the uh, prisoners coming in. Um, the uh, shoes that are just wilted, piles of shoes as long as this wall. Um, you know, uh, luggage that has people's names etched on it that's just ownerless now because all the owners are dead. Uh, all the faces of people who were at Auschwitz. A wall that's riddled with bullet holes from where they just brought people out and executed them. And then we ended our walkthrough uh, at the ovens, uh, where people were just shoveled into the ovens and burned. Some dead, some alive. Um, and we stood there in absolute silence. And then Dad only said one thing, and he said, whatever you believe about God has to make sense right here, or it can't make sense anywhere. And that significantly has, in, that has significantly informed my theological journey from then on, that whenever I have a conversation about theology, and, I'm supposed to, uh, and I am to articulate some truth about God, I always put myself back in front of those ovens and say, could I say that about God here? Could I talk about God giving me that parking spot? <laughs> could I talk about God getting me safely to, on this road trip to Texas? Could I talk about God providing me with the wonderful food that's on my table? And could I say that in front of the ovens of Auschwitz where God's chosen people, six million of them were killed, burned. So the Holocaust is very much in my mind as I talk about this, in my father's mind, in all of our minds as we talk about this, we have been to Dachau, we've been to Auschwitz, we've been to Yad Vashem uh, Holocaust Memorial and Museum in, uh, in Jerusalem. We've been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. And it is heavy. It is heavy. My very first trip to Poland, when we went to Auschwitz, we also went to Krakow and went to the Jewish ghetto. And I watched Schindler's List for the first time, which was very, very heavy, and then went to Auschwitz. Um, and so that experience stays with me. So just please do keep in mind that everything that I'm talking about with Palestinians and what happened in this story is done with this in my mind. It's not like we're ignoring this. We know what happened. But I'm not sure that one people's suffering justifies the suffering of another people. I don't think anyone has a monopoly on human suffering. And I think the Holocaust, what we're going to see happen to the Palestinians, all of it is reprehensible and should be condemned. Right? No one people get to say, well, I suffered, therefore, it's okay what I'm doing to you. But we also know from abused child syndrome that the people most likely to abuse their kids are the ones who were abused. Trauma that is not transformed is transferred, right? If we haven't transformed our trauma, we will give it somewhere else. It is an energy that cannot be created nor destroyed. It is only transferred. And that's what we're seeing, I think, also with this situation. So what happens with the Holocaust, and I believe this is my last slide, which should be perfect timing. 
During and after the Holocaust, Jewish immigration drastically increases. Jews are trying to get out as fast as they can. Not all of them are coming to Palestine. A lot of them are going to the U.S. And of course, you probably know what happens to the Jews who come to the U.S. Most of them, that ship gets turned around and they head straight back to Europe and most of them die. Right? President Obama has talked about this in the way we're dealing with Syrian refugees, saying, do we remember what we did with the Jews and what happened with the Jews? Do we not have an obligation to do better this time around? Same situation. So a lot of them end up coming to Palestine. The, the immigration drastically increases. So Britain finally says, you know what? We're done. Cannot handle this. And they hand over the decision of Palestine to the United Nations in February of 1947. And they plan their withdrawal. And so in November of 47, the UN issues this resolution called 181, which is a partition plan, the second partition plan to divide Palestine. And they divide it so that what you see in light goes to the Jews. And what you see in dark goes to the Arabs with this uh, central area here being international territory of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And we will talk about the issues with this next week. We have one minute. Any, any questions? <laughs> yeah, in the back. What, in this interval, uh, Theodore Roosevelt probably had a lot to say. He was a man of influence. Uh, what was his influence? Yeah, I mean, I, really, I couldn't speak to that. I haven't looked into what, what Roosevelt is saying. I do know that there's... Um, I think we'll talk some next week about the way that American politics are playing into this and then the effect that the Cold War has on a lot of this stuff. Um, and looking at even the, in the 40s, the influence that uh, the Jewish population in America is having on who wins the presidential election and how they're having to start paying a lot more attention to support of Israel because of politics, which is the same thing that's happening today. But specifically what Roosevelt was saying, I personally am not aware of that. I apologize. There may not be a good answer to this, but this all kicked off with the program. So my question would be to you from all your studies. Why the pogroms? Why do they happen Why in Russia? They happen I mean, and elsewhere. Why, in your in your sense? I don't I don't know that I can. Uh, accurately or, or very articulately describe why, because I feel like the question is, why does anti-Semitism exist? Yeah. And I have no idea. Why does racism exist? I mean, with racism we can trace back economically and talk about the, I mean, that's a whole other thing about slavery and, and what was needed for the plantations in the United States. But there does seem to be this sense to which a lot of humans are very uncomfortable with people who look different and are different, right? There's this other mentality that we want to get rid of the others. It's exactly what Hitler was doing with the the Aryan nation, people had to look a certain way, and if you were different, whether you were Jew, you were gay, you were uh, uh, disabled, you were a gypsy, whatever it was, if you were not this, ster this prototype, you're not welcome in, on the earth, right? I just wonder um, if there's any speculation back then, writings that you read where they said this is happening because... I, d I don't know, j my dad may know. Not specifically, but I think it has to do with the, um, the subset of the Jewish population that always tried to maintain its separateness. Mm -hmm. There were many who wanted to assimilate mm -hmm. in the way that we all assimilate into American culture, but many who maintained a separate dress, a separate language, Hebrew or Yiddish, mm -hmm. a separate religion, a minority religion. So whenever you have a minority who's living as a separate population within a majority population, there's often the opportunity for prejudice and for, yeah. um, uh, for um, abuse and trauma. Then there's this notion that grew in Christianity that the Jews killed Jesus. Right. And this conflict about that language in the Bible, the, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. And there are many people who feel like that's not the best way to translate the, the scripture or to understand what was happening. It wasn't the Jews that killed Jesus, it was the Romans. And, and so there is that, that tradition that, that a prejudice has grown over the years among many, many Christians, that the Jews killed Jesus, therefore the Jews are to blame. So you tie that together with their separateness, mm -hmm. and there's a, a fertile ground for prejudice. Perfect.
We're out of time. Uh, you're welcome to come up afterwards. I did bring more books for those who were wanting books last time. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week.